Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Flow Line. This is Justin Gautier, your host, and I'm here with Matt Offenbacher. You know, we're like Batman and Robin. I don't know who's who, Matt, but who do you feel like today? I'm not sure. (laughs) But uh, we're both wearing tights. <laughs> <laughs> right, and we're running through. I'm more worried about how the uniform fits. <laughs> <laughs> if we did this on YouTube, everyone could see it, but now that we're not. So yeah. it's just you're just going to have to use your wildest imagination. Speaking of which, Matt, are you a DC guy or a Marvel guy? I don't know. Okay. My wife loves all the superhero movies, and so we go to them. Oh, okay. A lot of them involve the X-Men and I don't understand the timeline thing where I thought that character died and now they're back in a new movie. And I'm like, this timeline thing is actually a pretty creative way to milk this stuff for generations. Right. But I don't know. Do you have a favorite superhero? I can't say that I do. I mean, you know, so you get in the superhero argument and there's the okay. like, you know, Spider-Man I think is really cool. Like I like the background story and all that. But then there's like the argument about Spider-Man and Superman or whatever, like they're just born with these gifts that they get to use Mm. versus like Batman, you know, he's a human who has to like put on a suit and fight crime. Right. Then again, he's like a billionaire and can do whatever he wants. And so (laughs) like, you know, Uh, yeah. Am I that inspired? I don't know. And like he, if you're like, well, he's a perfectly normal guy. It's like, well, he comes across as a weirdo. Right. If you put the whole thing together. So... (laughs) Yeah. I don't know where to land on this one. And that's, that's such an interesting take. So to your point, or I guess to add to that is I don't go watch the superhero movies. I don't even remember the last one I watched. So I can't sit here and be like, oh, I'm a Marvel guy and here's why. But the first, and again, I think I would get too open on this podcast now because someone was laughing about my watching the ditch magnet story the other day. <laughs> um, like, wow, you're such a worm. But the first movie I remember crying on was a Batman movie at the very end when he's standing on top of the building and it's like him. He's just like this heroic figure in the yeah. shadow and his capes thing. I me- I'll never forget. That was the first movie I cried on. And I don't know why, but I was just so inspired. But if I had answered the question, it is Batman. I mean, I had a friend who <laughs> broke up with his girlfriend of like three years after watching Spider-Man, you know, where it's like, <laughs> he's got to make a choice between whatever. And it was like, he wasn't going to go fight crime, but he's like, it just made me realize how I have to make decisions about life or something. It was like, no way. All right, dude, just don't tell anybody else that Spider-Man tipped you over the edge. Like, <laughs> wow. That, so, I mean, if you got to pick between the two, you're obviously very committed. And you know, the other interesting thing about those is because they go man. way back. It's so like my wife has all these old books, like collections of the comic books from like the you know, 60s or whatever. Yeah. And they're generally, you know, a little sexist and a little like, wow, this stuff has been updated and that's probably for the best for right. all of us. But like there's one that my son always wants to read. It's like a very summary of the origins of Superman and that sort of thing. And so they send him off. It's like, oh no, our planet's going to blow up. And then they basically like, 
put baby Superman in a rocket and send him to Kansas or whatever. And then it shows like the rocket leaving and their planet exploding. Wow. And I'm really anxious about the part where my son puts two and two together. Like, what happened to Superman's parents? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the questions will come and then it's up to you to figure out how you want to like build what narrative around what crazy story but yeah yeah it's this superhero thing i don't even know how i brought that up oh because we're 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 saving the world we are saving the world we're saving the drilling world and because we're here to save the world we're here to talk about green energy but more specifically green drilling fluids because that also is going to contribute to saving the world yes okay good let's actually let's kind of take a step back 30,000 foot view. Matt, what is green? Like if you're to say, we have a green drilling fluid, how do you define green? Like what exactly does that mean? Well, it's the reason that I don't say we have a green or environmentally friendly anything is because what is your definition of green or environmentally friendly? Mm, Good point. I mean, if you do anything, you change the environment. If someone wants to go to extremes, they can define that as some form of harm, which I think at the most extremes, we would fundamentally disagree with. But my frustration when those words are thrown around is, what's your yardstick? Because nobody seems to have the same one. Mm-hmm. You know, is it that we use bio-based sources? We use a ton of plant-based. Think of all our LCMs. A lot of our surfactants come from bio-based sources. That doesn't mean if you spill them or you know you want to rub them all over your hands. They could still, you know, from a health and safety perspective, they're on the flip side, even though they're bio-based. Right. Beneficial reuse. I joke all the time that we, you know, grind up people's trash and sell it back to them as lost circulation material. We take a lot of waste streams and we do things with them that other people wouldn't use. Obviously, right now, carbon intensity is a big deal. Greenhouse gas emissions associated with these things. And I have a little story that I think I'll wrap us up with on some of my frustrations there. And then, you know, it's better defined in more sensitive environments, if you will. So offshore, marine, aquatic environments where water can transport things pretty readily, mm-hmm. organisms can take that in. And so you can have some serious things happen. But, you know, we have tests like the LC50 test. Well, LC50 to what? In the Gulf of Mexico, it's mycid shrimp. I've been other places where they use a different little shrimp <laughs> that is sensitive to other chemicals. Yeah, And I guess... If it's ubiquitous in the area, that's relevant to that environment. But if it passes a Gulf of Mexico test, does that make it safe in an inland waterway in Indonesia? Right. You know, biodegradation. So does it readily biodegrade if it was spilled on the ground? And this one, I was had an interesting conversation with one of our listeners. This sort of inspired this conversation <laughs> because we were talking and they said, look, we've got something that's biodegradable and, you know, a component and... You know, that we're intrigued by that. I said, well, that's interesting. You know, some of these things, it depends on whether it's an aerobic or anaerobic environment. So I've probably mentioned this on base oils before, but way back when they were going to use esters as base oils, you know, esters are plant or animal based. So super green, right? Except for the part where they looked at all the biodegradation stuff and it looked good until they got to seabed accumulation. So all the cuttings piling up on the ocean floor yeah. and you have an anaerobic environment, super toxic. Interesting. Because there's some available oxygen in the ester and that sort of thing. And it was like, oh dear. Mm. So it was like, well, if you keep stirring up the cuttings, it's great. But if not, it's nasty and kills everything. Mm. So where do you want to land on this? 
you know, is an acute or chronic risk. Like, you know, if something's really, really nasty, we probably don't want to be handling it anyways. But sometimes if you're in the same place for a long time, a chemical might have a different type of risk. And then, you know, what are the regulating bodies say? Sometimes it's helpful to have a referee. Generally, it's a mixed bag and we can unpack that here in a minute. But think about in the U.S. where you're talking to Sometimes you're on federal land. Sometimes you're on state land. Sometimes you're convincing a landowner that you're doing something well. I mean, you can show them a bunch of confusing environmental tests, but I actually had, I had one person, like a regulator, and it was basically like, can I drink it? It was the only way to make sense of it. We were using some very clean stuff. And mm-hmm. other than the intense laxative effect, yes, you could drink it. <laughs> right. And it was like, okay, that's your standard, even though... Like there's tons of other environmental data. I could show the biodegradation. I could show all these other things and certificates. It was too confusing for a regulator to understand. And they were like, if somebody drank it, would they get sick? No. I mean, in a way it's like, well, that's fair. There's just not, there's not a great regulation or set of lab tests that you can say, yeah, that'll be all right. Right. But my frustration with a lot of the bodies that do have things is there's a lot of bureaucracy with not much clarity. So the U.S. is probably a bit looser than most places, but the other places, you know, in Europe, they have lists like chemicals, like the Plonor list, which is pose little or no risk to the environment. You can get it registered as REACH under REACH, which is registration, evaluation, authorization, and restriction of chemicals. And then CFAS has some stuff, and these are all, you know, for permission to use offshore, it has to meet certain test restrictions. And I get a lot of them are associated with marine hazards in Europe. And it's like, okay, well, at least you picked a list. My frustration is how long it takes to get those things registered, how expensive it is, and how, you know, I remember trying to get something registered. You know, it was a new technology. It was going to solve a problem for a customer. And they, we submitted everything for fast track and it was going to take three months. And we kept asking for an update and they wouldn't call us back, wouldn't reply like a good, you know, bureaucratic agency. And then when we finally got a hold of somebody, they're like, oh, yeah, we lost it. You have to start all over. <laughs> Jesus. And I was like, well, couldn't you, like, this project's going to start soon. Couldn't you fast track it because you made a mistake? And they're like, no. And I was like, well, can we appeal to anybody? No. <laughs> and so it's just, you know, how much that sort of stifles innovation. And, like, I don't mind doing the due diligence, you know, if we can all agree on what the goalposts are. Yeah. But what you see is some of this stuff is fairly arbitrary run by people who are arbitrary. Right. And that doesn't provide clear guidelines for us to be better stewards of the environment in a way that can be studied and evaluated and either approved upon or criticized, frankly, that, hey, this isn't making the difference that you say it is. Right. You know, I guess one thing that kind of opened my eyes to sort of that world was when I was looking at different products for like HDD work because a lot of them mm, have to yeah. be NSF certified. Yep. And so that to me was somewhat of a good, I guess, goalpost to say, okay, as long as each product that you're mixing into the system is X certified, whether it's NSF or some certification, but then we know like, quote unquote, it meets qualifications, which I guess then you could say it's green, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But that to me was kind of interesting is like, if each product meets a certain certification based off the data and some regulatory body that approves on that, I could see that being, you know, I guess the future, but in the like downhole world, like we just don't have that yet. 
Yeah, well, and I mean, other places do, and they get by, obviously. Mm. I think a big part of the frustration is, you know, even NSF, there are things to it where you say, I don't understand this. I'm not saying it's all bad. Like, you know, the important thing about HDD work, horizontal directional drilling, it's all very shallow. You're through water tables, you're drilling under rivers. You need benign chemistry because it will get into the water, without a doubt, has high risk of getting into a water supply, Correct. which means you should be able to drink it. Yeah. And those chemicals are, it's not just these chemicals are approved, it's that they're made and registered and certified such that the bag has the logo on it, which means if you're selling bentonite, the bentonite you're using on one of those projects has the logo. Right. You could still have, bent, you know, the bentonite we sell in West Texas doesn't do that or isn't certified like that. It's not monitored. Mm-hmm. And some of that makes sense. Right. So, but yeah, and I think that's a pretty good example of like the idea, you know, hey, it meets logo X and that is some standard. Sure. You know, getting everybody to agree to it feels next to impossible. And the worst possible thing that could happen is somebody in the government decides they're going to decide, <laughs> you know, yeah. that's, and a lot of it is education and engagement. You know, you look at what goes on in Colorado and some of these other places where, you know, Dean Madrid presented a great paper on just relating with the community and messaging because let's face it, drilling fluid environmentally, the worst possible thing that could happen, I think, would be a spill, right? I mean, you're welcome to come up with a counterexample, listeners, but spilling it, okay, it gets into the soil. Could it be in such a concentration or could it spill out of a berm into a river or whatever? Like, we do a lot of mitigation efforts to limit it from being spilled. Right. We use it to drill down holes. Some of it might get lost down there, what have you. We haul our cuttings away or we dispose of them in line with regulations. And then we take the fluid out of the hole, we run casing, and we cement it, and then we produce hydrocarbons from that same wellbore. So how careful do I need to be with a fluid that I drill into a reservoir where oil's coming back out of it? Mm-hmm. Right. I don't know. It goes back to don't spill it at surface is, is probably one of the biggest things. But also, you know, are there some measures where you say, well, if it did spill, it would be, you know, reasonably safe or less harmful because of some extra measures we took. Yeah. And so that's where I kind of break down like any of these classic matrices, right? You've got the risk, the likelihood, and the severity. So if something's very, very likely to happen, you need to put a lot of energy in limiting it from happening unless the severity is next to nothing in the same, you know, vice versa. If something's very, very severe and the likelihood is high, yeah, you need to spend a lot of time mitigating that risk. And so to me, one of the important things isn't necessarily what our chemicals are made of. I'm not saying that doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that a lot of the stuff that's out there is addressing risks and concerns that aren't common. They exist, but their severity and likelihood is low. Right. Well, you know. Yeah. And I think, and I was going to sort of talk about just the exposure to humans, which that gets into the safety part. So not necessarily, if we're just talking green from the perspective of like what's good for the environment or something that is, I guess, quote unquote, good for the environment or not harmful to the environment. Yeah. Again, when you kind of look at it from that angle and saying, again, there's no, again, on the rig site, there's no like scope one associated emissions with using any type of drilling fluid. Really, it's, you know, if you want to talk about pumps and everything else, another mm. story. But the products in itself, are they harmful to the environment by 
pumping them down hole. And there's not too many that like, what's the outcome, right? Like, is Mm -hmm. there really any issues there? So again, I think we have to ask ourselves, like, what are we trying to accomplish? Like, what problem are we trying to solve when it comes to developing a green fluid? Is it marketing? Is there, I think a primary focus should be on like harmfulness to the people working on the rig, I think is probably one of the bigger ones. But yeah, again, it's from the environmental perspective, it's, I think we really have to ask, what are we trying to accomplish? And so I guess, you know, that leads into the question, man, I think we should always be thriving to do better. Like, so what can we do better? Like, where do you think we need to take sort of this whole idea? And as we move forward into a transitioning, you know, energy world, if you will. I mean, I think it goes back to, we can always use less harmful chemicals, or there may be opportunities to. Most of the time when we have a conversation with somebody, they say, look, you know, I don't have a ton of exposure incidents. I make sure my people are trained to wear their PPE or that we don't spill or that we have good spill prevention measures. And so like, this is not a thing that plagues me per se, but we could always, and I say, okay, well, look, you could spend X percent more on a so-called green or more benign product. Like it does the same function. It just costs more and it might even take a little more of it, but we have it if you want it. And most of the time they say I'll pass. And then other times I've seen folks say, oh yeah, this stuff's really green. And it's like, what's the definition? Oh, well, it's bio-based or it's a food thing or what have you. It's like, but this doesn't in the big picture move the needle for anybody. I think that being realistic at the difference you can make and going after the most obvious things is the best way to, you know, be a better steward with the environment. And yes, we're always, we're always pursuing safer, more environmentally friendly options whenever we can. There are certain additives that, you know, options are becoming more available. Mm-hmm. That chemistry needs to mature a bit in many ways, but in other ways, it's like, yeah, sure, if, if we can do it, but I still have to have something my customer's going to buy. And, you know, right now, a lot of it is sort of you alluded to, everyone wants to talk about carbon intensity or at least greenhouse gases. And most of that, if you look at every earnings slide of every operator, has to do with emissions on the production side, which, you know, makes great sense. But probably our biggest carbon intensity opportunity or reduction opportunity is to drill faster. Yeah. I mean, it's baked into our business that if we do a clean, safe operation and our customers drill faster, they save money, but they also impact the environment less because they're not burning as much fuel to run the rig or, you know, they're not there as long yeah. to interact with wildlife. There's lower risks of things happening. Yep. So, you know, my frustration, I'm not done talking about this topic, but as we explore options for our customers and offer those options up, there's just a lot of smoke and mirrors. The so-called green chemistry brochures that I've seen, at least in the drilling fluids world, are mostly just this nonsense word salad of, you know, this stuff is good stewardship and everybody wants to do better, right? Like I don't, (laughs) if you ask anybody, would you like to be more damaging or less damaging to the environment? Would you like to take more risk or less risk? Would you like to, you know, have more bio-based materials on location? Like the answer is a resounding yes. A bit of the irony to me is we're already using a ton of those products. Right. The more frustrating thing is that some of those products are being pursued by 
a lot of other people outside the oil and gas industry to so-called be green. And what you're doing is you're effectively pushing us out of a space where we were using low carbon intensity products and beneficial reuse materials because you want to refine it into a biofuel. And ultimately, all you've done is shifted things around. Now, the chemicals industry has to go look elsewhere. It's going to be more carbon intensive. Mm -hmm. The Europeans can feel good because their carbon intensity went down. They just forced the rest of the world into a higher carbon intensity environment. Like, we're not helping. You're just shifting around things to feel better about yourself. And crude tall oils is like my primary like tirade on this is there's this whole argument with biofuels, right? Don't affect the food supply. So they've gone after crude tall oils, which is basically the stuff you get from pine trees after you turn them into paper. And we use that stuff all the time for products. It turns out that it falls into that niche of not being part of the food supply and could be refined into a biofuel. And with subsidies, they're going to outbid all the chemicals people, have it shipped halfway across the world, use it as a biofuel, and then leave us with what? Plant-based stuff that requires fertilizer and land and food, basically displacing the food supply or the risk of doing it. So, you know, did we do better? Right. No. And so I think there's just, there's so much in the world of carbon intensity and in that space, especially, that really frustrates and disappoints me because I think there's a lot more attempts to claim success on policy or like put a sticker on that says I'm green right. than there is to actually define what did we accomplish that's going to help with climate change or with whatever. Yeah. And so I think, you know, when you say, what can we do better? I think we can be realistic about the impact we have, assess how we have that impact. And then one, I think behaviors are probably much more impactful and we can do them right now. Mm -hmm. And then we can look at these other chemistries and I think we will, we have, and we should. But at the end of the day, understand that they're not going to turn the world upside down, at least not yet. And so we're going to keep looking at them, but they're probably not going to change the game in the oil field. Right. No, it's again, sitting in the seat that we have here in the drilling fluid world is, again, there hasn't been much, or I guess, you know, again, no one's come to the table with a system that's fully green that can meet the technical requirements that can increase, you know, the performance of a drilling rig, the economics makes sense. Like it's definitely like maybe down the road it'll happen. So we actually did this with one customer is we put together some a system we have actually used in the past mm -hmm. in combination with a carbon neutral base oil. So this is an invert emulsion, synthetic base mud. Okay. And we gave them the pricing of this is what it costs to run. This is the greenest mud formulation you could get your hands on. And the data, you know, tells you as much. The carbon intensity is relatively low, but this is how much it costs. And it was a lot more than what we use today. Mm -hmm. It's not that you can't get these things. It's that they have a price. And when we've tried to put all that together, I think even going into data analytics and technology, like we've talked about in the past, knowing when you don't need oil-based mud, when you can use when you can drill with water, drill with water and a lube, you know? Yeah. If we can be smarter about that and not do those all the time, that can be another step here. Yeah. But the chemistry itself, there's no silver bullets. We're looking for them, but we haven't found werewolves either. <laughs> yeah. No, again, it's a complex conversation. 
clearly, it, I think there's a lot of issues with how we define certain things, especially on the environmentally friendly piece of our business. And so again, it's I invite people to come to the table and have a conversation like this if, if you have experience or you have ideas or just thoughts around it, because I think good constructive conversations where we can challenge each other's train of thoughts is healthy and hopefully can move the needle forward. But again, I thought, you know, again, you brought this topic up and I thought it would be important because I think as our industry moves forward, there's going to be a lot of folks out there who try to, you know, capture the opportunity to market themselves as something that may or may not, when you look at the data, be true or maybe exactly what they're proposing. And so just be mindful and be critical. Yeah. Greenwashing is a thing, right? I mean, ultimately with any story where you put together a set of tests to tie them together and make an argument is going to be tied to a narrative. And somebody else has to believe in the tenets of your narrative. Right. But if they don't know the difference, if you just confuse them with LC50 this and, you know, bioaccumulation that, First, you have to educate them on what all this stuff means, mm-hmm. these tests, and then you have to apply them. And there's just not that many people who know how to do it or have the resources, given how expensive a lot of these tests and certifications are, to go to all this trouble when there's no regulation dictating it and it doesn't appear to move the needle on the environmental side. But like you said, when you hear a story, we'd welcome anybody who wants to educate like if they see some testing or metrics that are valuable, we want to hear them too. We want to get together with you. If we could come up with the green sticker for the oil field chemicals, like we'll sit on your panel, right? Like <laughs> yeah. let's all come to a consensus. I just, I think it's going to be harder to find than we would hope. Right. Well, to be continued, I think this will be a good conversation that we just continuously have. Again, for the listeners out there, if you have any thoughts, questions, or again, you have some great information that you'd like to kind of share, then please, we're always welcome to that. You can reach us on LinkedIn. Matt and I are both on there. Be sure to you know check out the AES profile page. We've got a lot of great content that we're continuously pumping out on pretty much a regular basis now, if not daily, which is fascinating to see. You can reach us at the Flowline Podcast at AESFluids.com. Be sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel. And of course, if you could leave a review, we've got way more downloads per episode than we do reviews. So if you're out there listening and you're not driving, could you take a minute or so and just leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to? That'd be super helpful. And with that said, everyone, take care. We'll see you next time. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.